Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Last Monday of the month, thank goodness gracious, Guy Adami, EY from SoFi, on the tape podcast on this Monday. Before we get started, Elizabeth, how have you been? Ah, great. Fresh off vacation. Fresh off a Costa Rica trip. Okay, so here's what I think happened last week. The alerts on my phone. I mean, just give a summary. This is what I missed. GDP was hot. Right. PCE was cool. Fed odds still 50-50 for March. About right. 46%, Uh, I think, but yeah. Yeah. Dan Ives said some stuff about Tesla. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Bradley Cooper and Gigi Hadid are dating officially and J-Lo cut her hair. That's, That's about it. You nailed it all. Let's we'll see you guys next week on the On the Tape podcast. Yeah. No. That, that's a wrap. So it is Monday. The market continues to sort of, I don't want to say defy logic because maybe logic has nothing to do with it. But obviously, as we sit here, we're talking about an SP 500 effectively at 4,900, a NASDAQ 15,500. You know all the superlatives. It's been remarkable in a word. Obviously, the first week of the year, we got off to a rough start only to see markets just take off as individual stocks. But this week, EY, I think it's important. Sometimes it's good to take a week off or so. It allows you to sort of look at things from 30,000 feet. And obviously, whether you're on vacation or not, you stay on top of things. But we have a huge list of earnings this week. So I guess my first question to you is, it's somewhat rhetorical, but does the fate of the market lie in the earnings releases or am I making too much out of that? No, I think it does lie in the earnings releases. And this week happens every time we go through this. It's the biggest week of reporting. I want to say it's what, 32% of S&P market cap reports this week, the most companies of any other week. Plus, we get five of those mega cap tech names. And those are the ones that are going to have to prove to the market, not necessarily that they're the ones that we're going to get these reports and suddenly the market's going to take off in response, but 
it's time to prove it. We have to prove to the market that they deserve their multiples, that they deserve to be leaders. And a lot of the expectations in earnings season, if you look at charts of how earnings have gone and the revisions and just the downward trend of the rest of the S&P, these tech companies are the ones that hold the key. It's amazing. We're talking about Microsoft now with a $3 trillion market cap on the screws, trading the right side of $400, obviously, for the first time ever, all-time high. And again, I'll say this, I've said it for years now, Microsoft to me is one of the five most important companies in the world. I take nothing away from them, but what concerns me is valuation. And that's been a concern for a while, by the way, but as you approach 30 times forward earnings from Microsoft, you're baking in a lot of good news. My point in bringing that up is it's not just Microsoft. You're talking about Apple with an extended valuation. A lot of these stocks, clearly the beneficiary areas of money flows. I get it. But those money flows have gotten these stocks to levels that, in my opinion, really going to be difficult to sort of get over what is an extraordinarily high bar. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And one of the things that actually Mike Wilson has pointed out in some of his writing in the last couple of weeks is that what happened towards the end of 2023 and then into 2024 was that we had this huge surge of sort of crap rally into the end of 2023. And then in 2024, it reversed and we're back to the same old leaders, those big cap tech names and valuations seemingly don't matter for those particular names. But here's the thing, and this is what Mike has said, and I agree, we're basically back to late cycle behavior in the market. This is exactly what happened. We're seeing small caps sort of fall off, not necessarily go down terribly, but fall off and not become the stalwarts anymore. You've got big tech back in the lead. You've got even some big cap industrials doing pretty well. This is late cycle behavior. There was a spike in oil today, not because of late cycle stuff, but because of geopolitical risk. But there's a lot of stuff going on, again, that suggests late cycle. This is just maybe the longest late cycle that we'll ever be in. And for a while, it has felt like valuations don't matter. And in a lot of these big names, I think that's going to continue to be the case until and unless something happens. Well, it's interesting you say late cycle because Goldman Sachs had a note out, and I wasn't aware of this, but I'm quoting now from Goldman Sachs in terms of a short cycle rally in terms of history. This has been one of the most powerful short cycle rallies we've ever seen. The 19% rip in the S&P over the past three months registers in the 99th percentile of market history. This type of move usually happens coming out of recessions, which again, I don't use the recession word because I'm not an economist, but here's what I'll tell you. We're clearly not coming out of one. There's obviously euphoria that maybe we're not going to go into one, but everything that I look at in terms of the data suggests we're on the precipice of entering one and not least of which, by the way, and you've brought this up a number of times is the fact that two thirties, as you probably know, flattened out. I think it got to even over the last week and a half. Two's tens is probably still inverted to the tune of, I don't know, depending on the hour of the day, 18 to 21 or so basis points. That's with, by the way, 10-year yields going from 380 to current levels. Last I looked about 415. So you've brought up that it's not the inversion that gets you. It's the re-steepening of the yield curve. And clearly we're in the midst of that. And by the way, if we get to February, which is going to happen this week, I believe this will be the longest inversion since they started monitoring these things. That's right. So a couple things here. What we've seen in the yield curve is now some of the belly of the curve hasn't moved the same way, but you see a parallel shift up. So the inversion has stayed about steady. I think the shallowest it's gotten in this cycle is what, 15, 16 basis points. We knocked on that door intraday a couple weeks ago. Now we're back to 20 basis points, but it's stayed steady. It hasn't gone back down into 
the 30s and 40 basis point territory. But the entire curve has moved up. So rates have gone back up. And that's something that I think the market and the economy has to digest. And then there's this suggestion that if the Fed is going to start cutting rates, you've got positive real rates. And then we've got positive real rates in a lot of places around the globe now. That's not something that we've been used to. The other thing I would say, we compare to the 90s a lot. Now that we've got this soft landing narrative, we compare to the 90s that, well, they pulled it off then. They had this immaculate soft landing in 94, 95, and the market continued to go okay for the next five-ish or so years. If you break it down, though, the parts of the market that did well were not big tech. They were not those companies, at least when you look on a relative basis. So if we're trying to compare to the mid-90s and what could happen from here, if we do pull this off, you do actually want to rotate away from some of those names. That makes a lot of sense to me. The move in some of these industrials, to your point, suggests that we're in a new stage, like a, a reemergence from what has been an extraordinarily slow period of time. And what, from what I can tell, I, I just don't see it. And part of this sort of lies in terms of the labor market. And I, don't, I know you're familiar with her. So Danielle DiMartino Booth did a podcast last week, and she brought up the fact that I was not aware of this, that 49 states in the country, the only one being exempt from this, Texas, has seen an uptick in their unemployment rates. Now, clearly that's not manifesting itself in the overall United States unemployment number. I think that's for a myriad of reasons, not least of which probably government jobs. But with that said, she brought up historically when all 50 states see that, it typically leads to a downturn. That on top of the yield curve that you mentioned, on top of a number of different things. If you look at liquidity, bank liquidity, bank lending standards, credit is clearly slowing down. All those things are happening right before our eyes, but nobody wants to pay attention to it because you have an S&P that goes up every day. And my concern is that's masking some of the damage that's being done under the surface. Absolutely. I mean, if you look fundamentally, economic fundamentals and even stock fundamentals, nothing's really changed in the last six months. It hasn't necessarily gotten that much worse. Some of it's gotten worse, but nothing has changed that much aside from the fact that the market has gone up and that's changed people's sentiment. So it is an interesting sort of paradox that we're in right now where you've got the stock market saying everything's going to be fine. And then even the bulls, I think their pushback to you would be, well, of course, we're expecting some kind of slowdown. That doesn't mean that we need to have this catastrophic recession that everybody's been calling for. It doesn't really even mean that we have to have a contraction. Maybe we just have slower growth and lower inflation. And that's their version of Goldilocks, right? I know you love that word so much. I just had to throw it in there. So here's the thing. I think that would be the pushback that, yeah, of course, things are going to slow down. Yeah, of course, the unemployment rate's probably going to go up a little bit. It gets above four, but we're still okay with that. And that's a comfortable place to be. And that may be true, but I still question back to the very beginning to bring this all full circle of the earnings expectations for this year. If we're okay with saying growth is going to slow to an uninspiring pace, let's call it 1.5% for 2024. And even if the bulls can get on board with that, how in the world are we going to produce 12% earnings growth? How in the world are we going to expand margins without cutting costs and affecting some of those economic variables that we've just talked about. No, I, I agree with you 100%. The math doesn't work. You've brought that up. I brought that up and nobody wants to seem to acknowledge it or they choose not to listen to it, which I totally understand because again, as the market goes up, it puts all those things sort of on the back burner. But to me, so much lies on, again, earnings expectations. I think, as you mentioned, 
11 and a half, 12% earnings growth this year. I just don't know how it manifests itself. And before our very eyes, the thing that we were concerned about early last year, a handful of stocks driving the broader market. Well, guess what? That's been effectively happening early this year as well. All those stocks, ex-Tesla, have gotten back on their horse, which leads me to Tesla. And I don't want to ask you about the stock, but I want to ask you, does the sentiment around it, because for years it was an Apple market, as Apple went, the broader market went. And then Tesla sort of, I want to say, went hand in terms of that mantle. And I'm not certain that's the case anymore, but Clearly, now you're talking about a stock that's down by over 50% from its all-time high and clearly underperforming the NASDAQ over that period of time. Is that a sentiment indicator at all, or is that just sort of out there by itself? I mean, my honest opinion is that there is key man influence on Tesla. And that I think a lot of investors, because of some of the charade that happens around it and all of the news and all of the headlines that happen around it, they sort of dismiss his antics and it doesn't quite have the same sentiment power that it used to. I think that this earnings season, this call in particular, because of the backlash that happened, obviously there's been negative price reaction. I don't think that it has the power that it did before. I think stocks like NVIDIA have taken that reign. I think you've still got a lot of power in Apple, a lot of power in Amazon, Google. I don't know that Tesla has quite the strength sentiment-wise that it did maybe even a year ago. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually with an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers their community oversees an astounding 48 trillion dollars and 16 trillion dollars in assets respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events we invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one -on -one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank NA, NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. One of the things I've been concerned about back to the consumer and I guess the economy in the broader sense is 
credit concerns, right? And we heard from Discover Financial a couple of weeks ago. We subsequently heard from Capital One. They said similar things. Now, obviously, on the Discover end of things, it's a very specific client base, which I totally understand. They guided in terms of loan loss provisions, which had been, I think, one and a half to 1.8%, somewhere between 49 and 5.4% this year, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but I, I'm here to tell you it's a big deal. You heard similar, but not as draconian out of Capital One. But then on Friday, we heard from American Express, who seemingly is telling you that everything is fine. And that's a stock that's making an all-time high. Yet again, you have these conflicting reports. On one side of the spectrum, you're hearing about concerns. On the other end, you're hearing it's sort of 1998, 1999 party on all over again. I think that's a perfect example of just the different income classes of consumers that are using credit. And American Express, as we know, is a higher income consumer. And you've got a lot of cards, a lot of platinum cards out there, folks, a lot of cards out there with unlimited spending. And American Express continues to be the leader in that cohort, right? And then you've got credit cards across the rest of the spectrum. It's not just Discover. I don't want to pick on Discover and Capital One. Other credit cards, you can almost just put all of them in another category. And you've got a huge smattering of different consumer spending levels and different income levels. What we do know about credit and spending, also the personal spending report is part of the GDP report, as I understand that that came in pretty hot as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there are two things you can compare in that report if you really dig deep into the details. You've got personal spending and you've got personal income. And again, the growth in personal spending has outstripped the growth in personal income, which means that people are probably overspending. And we know that because we know that they've spent a lot on credit cards. We all know the buy now, pay later story from the holidays. Some of that stuff does start to come due in January and February. So maybe some of these credit card companies are looking at those bills, those holiday spending bills and saying, you know what, this is a lot bigger dollar amount than we had last year, the year before. We're worried about consumers' ability to meet it. And we're already seeing a slow uptick in delinquency rates, which we know is happening. Let's shift gears again, because you are the queen of small caps. And I'll point out, like many other things, the IWM, the Russell 2000 ETF, the small cap ETF, made its all-time high in November of 2021. And I want to say it was north of 240-ish. Since that point, you go back to April of 2022, this 205 level has been resistance a number of times. It was in April of 2022. It happened again in August of that year subsequently happened in February of 23. It happened in August of 23. And it just happened again, late December of last year. We stopped on a dime at 205 on the upside. Now I want to make a big deal out of it because we're trading 196 as we speak. I think we got as low as about 193 and a half, 194, just for context. But the, my question is on the back of that setup, are you concerned about the underperformance of the small caps? Is that telling you anything? I'm not necessarily concerned about it because it lines up with where I think we are in the economy. What I would be concerned with is the stat that we talked about earlier in the the podcast about the S&P rallying 19%. That's usually what happens coming out of recessions. Small caps need to confirm that, and they haven't. So if you look at small cap behavior coming out of recessions, particularly small cap value usually, because that's where some of the financials fall into, small cap value tends to really run coming out of a recession. And the fact that we can't get above that certain level just continues to contradict the data 
that says we're in a new expansion, we're in an earlier cycle behavior. It even contradicts that we're in mid-cycle behavior. There's been some of that thrown around too, that, okay, maybe we're not late cycle anymore. Maybe we can get a growth resurgence that proves that we're mid-cycle. Small caps would need to confirm that too. And the other thing I would say, even about the S&P, and and I realize 100% that it is market cap weighted and those tech names, those consumer discretionary names absolutely dominate. But the sector, if you do regression analysis, as I know all of you love to do on Sunday nights when you're bored, if you do a regression analysis, the sector that actually has the closest correlation to the S&P over time is industrials. So you want industrials to confirm those moves as well. So I would watch small caps and I would watch industrials. I know that sounds counterintuitive in a big tech earnings week and in a time when we've got big tech dominating all of the market headlines again. But those are the ones that you want to confirm whether or not this is true durable upside and whether or not this is actually expansionary behavior. Yeah, listen, and anecdotally, I'll tell you again, not to play stock market with you, but United Rentals, URI, had a monster report last week. And that's a stock that's seemingly every two or three months makes a new all-time high. And that seems to be telling its own story. So to your point about industrials, yeah, you need them to participate. And clearly around the edges, at least, we're seeing that happen. So my next question to you is, as we're sitting here very quietly, WTI crude oil is pressing up against $80-ish for the first time in a while. We're still sub-79, but we're a lot closer today than we were maybe a month or so ago. You know, crude was not able to get off the mat for quite some time. A lot of reasons why weakness in China, the Saudis finally seemingly capitulated a little bit, but it's getting back on its horse. A lot of it is geopolitical. Maybe there's some other factors at work. How important is crude oil to this entire thing? Because quite frankly, we're talking about something that's gone up and down over the last year and a half, two years. But as we're sitting here today around $78, $79, it's basically the same price we saw in the fall of 2021. So you and I have talked about the fact that we think a lot of this is more supply-driven than demand-driven. There's arguments about that before expansionary if growth is accelerating again, that demand is coming back, and that's why oil might rise. I think it's much more supply-driven. These geopolitical risks continue to be that thing in the pond that's just sitting there waiting to bounce up and scare us. So I think oil prices are important for two very big reasons right now. The first of which is just as an indicator, if you're a macro strategist, this is the kind of stuff you watch, just as an indicator, oil has been pretty low. It's been grinding sideways in a range for a while. If there's another spike, recessions are usually preceded by a spike in oil. I don't care what it's caused by. If there's Mm -hmm. a spike, they are usually preceded by that. That's reason number one to watch oil right now. Reason number two is because, again, I know we've talked about this before, but a lot of this lowering of inflation has been driven by falling oil prices, falling gasoline prices, consumers feeling better about what they're paying at the pump, consumers feeling like maybe airline fare got a little bit more affordable because of falling oil prices. It's just generally something that Every consumer understands whether they're in finance or not. As oil falls, they feel like they have more money in their pocket. If oil prices go up, that changes on a dime. And you've got a problem not just with consumer sentiment surveys, which are very dependent on how consumers feel about inflation, but you've got a problem at the Fed. And if oil goes back up when the Fed has already started cutting, then we've really got a conundrum. They clearly are focused. I mean, I'm sure they're focused on that without question. I'm not convinced that this dragon has been slayed in the form of inflation, but I'll say this as well. The energy stocks, as yields came down from 5 to 3.8 in the 10-year, obviously there was a re-rotation into high valuation, high growth technology names, which I guess makes sense. But I think the one that sort of took it on the chin, the brunt of it was probably energy stocks. And then 
Subsequently, as crude sold off, I think there was sort of a double dip in terms of the pain that they felt. But I'll say this, and I know you know this, if you're looking for valuations and if you're looking for balance sheets, the energy sector gives you both. And I'm surprised that people are sort of not paying any attention to that sector whatsoever. I agree with that, especially just the rotations that we've seen for the last couple of years, right? Energy was the standout performer in 2022, absolute awful in, in 2023. If this rotation holds, and if we see again, just a flip-flop, energy should actually do pretty well this year just because it's been out of favor. So that's something to watch. One other thing has nothing to do with energy, although some energy companies do pay good dividends, but I think investors should start paying attention to dividend stocks, particularly as we get closer and closer to Fed cutting, because you've got rates that should come down if and when the Fed starts cutting, which I think they will do at some point this year. Rates will come down money market rates will come down. Some of that stuff will no longer look as attractive. And if we haven't gone into a recession, people still want that income because now they're used to it. And I bet they're going to start looking for it in dividend stocks. My research partner, Mario, did a great piece while I was gone last week on dividend stocks. Go check out the blog for that piece. But we talked about that before I left because I think it is something that's going to come back into conversation pretty quickly. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. And before we get out of here, you mentioned consumer confidence and the University of Michigan survey came out, I think, when you were away, maybe it came out just as I, I get my days mixed up. But my point is, that was a ridiculously strong number. But it flies in the face of if you watch MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, and all the different polls they do about how is President Biden doing on the economy? What are your views on the economy? Those things are at historic low levels. Meanwhile, the confidence level, I don't want to say it's historic high levels, but it's approaching that. I can't reconcile it. Maybe you can't either. But do you have any thoughts on that? Because I think that speaks to a lot of the things that we're talking about here. I can reconcile it with what I just talked about with oil prices. The University of Michigan sentiment index is heavily dependent on questions about inflation. So how consumers are feeling about inflation will influence how they answer that survey. The conference board survey asks a lot of similar questions, but is more skewed towards the labor market. So if we have a strong labor market, if we've got good jobs numbers, you're going to see the conference board survey respond more to that. But that Michigan survey, very sensitive to inflation. And this is obviously at a time when we've seen good inflation numbers as far as everybody is interpreting them right now. And the idea that maybe we're declaring victory, maybe prematurely, but the idea that I think people are declaring victory on inflation has influenced that considerably. I knew you'd have the answer to that, which is why I asked all good attorneys know that their client and or witness has the answer ahead of time and you did not disappoint. <laughs> My last question to you is as follows, and it, it revolves around sort of the unemployment number. If I'm being 100% honest, which I am, if you had asked me in June, where's the unemployment rate going to be in February, which is effectively where we are, of 2024, I would have said, I don't know, about 4.4, 4.5%. We're not even close. I'm puzzled by that. I look to the revisions now, I think 11 months in a row, negative revisions. That's not apples to apples. I get it. But I think you can glean something from that. A lot of government jobs in these numbers. Am I looking at this the wrong way? Because I think there's going to be a job number that comes out of nowhere and surprises people in the wrong way. In other words, you're going to start seeing spikes in the unemployment rate. 
I would expect the same as the economy slows. That's been the theory all along is that there has to be more pain on the labor market in order to accomplish these other tasks. I would expect the same. I, again, would have expected it to happen sooner than it has. The high-frequency data usually is the stuff that warns us first. And what I mean by high-frequency data, it's the jobless claims numbers that we get every Thursday. Because we get them on a weekly basis, they're higher frequency, they move a little bit more quickly. Now, keep in mind, those numbers are two weeks delayed. So we get them on Thursday. That doesn't mean that it's for that particular week, but it is. it does happen more often. So that usually gives us a better warning. I would tell people to watch the continuing claims numbers, which have ticked up. They're about pre-pandemic level right now, nothing concerning, but they have moved up pretty steadily. Those continuing claims numbers are really what change things if you look back in time and you say, oh, there was a warning sign there. It's the continuing claims that'll get you. The other thing I would say is that we have heard announcements in the early part of this year already about layoffs. You've heard some big headline. I think Salesforce was the most recent one. That happens in a lot of years. Now, if it keeps going and if we're still getting announcements like that in March, April, May, that's where it becomes a little bit more abnormal. A lot of times to start the year, companies will make these announcements and it's just to cut costs, to reposition. I don't think it's that big of an alarm yet, but if it continues to roll through the year, that's where you're going to see things hit the unemployment rate. Anecdotally, I'm hearing from some of my friends slash people that I still talk to, February 13th might be a very interesting day in the banking sector in terms of layoff announcements. So be on the lookout for that because I don't think the banking sector and Wall Street is impervious to any of this. I'll say this before we go, Elizabeth. It's great having you. Check out EY's blog on the SoFi website. Next two weeks are going to be extraordinarily trying for me. Number one, a lot of earnings to sift through. That's always difficult. Number two, I'm going to have to listen to every non-football person I know talk about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. And for somebody like me, it makes me absolutely miserable. You... I feel bad for Patrick Mahomes. He hasn't gotten any cred this year because the whole story is about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Thanks, folks, for listening. It's been a lot of fun. EY, thank you. And later today, Dan and I will be coming live from the pool deck of the Fountain Blue Hotel for Market Call. No, I won't be in a bathing suit. I'll see you later. <laughs> Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.